Chapter Three of the Daredevil by Maria Thompson Davies. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter Three That Mr. G. Slade of Detroit. A number of moments in the rapid passing of the next few months, I have wondered what would have resulted if I had taken that vacant chair between very agreeable Mr. William Raines and very proper Mr. Peter Scudder, so evidently reserved for the young, beautiful, and charming Marquise of Grey and B. I have decided that in about the half of one hour young Mr. Robert Carruthers would have been extinct, and the desired and beloved Marquise in her place between them, sipping her tea while making false excuses for forgiveness. I did not take that seat, but I accepted one which a garçon offered me next to them, and did regard them with both fear and wistfulness, also with an intense attention, so that I might acquire as much as possible from them of an American gentleman's manner. I suppose the dame's fussing up for us to the limit, Peter, observed that Mr. St. Louis, while he emptied a glass of amber liquid, and removed a cherry from its depths with his fingers and devoured it with the greatest relish gee but the genuine american cocktail is one great drink have another peter you're so solemn that i'm beginning to believe that belle marquise did put a dent in your old quaker heart after all there was something in that girl's eyes as they followed us william that no cocktail ever shaken could get out of my mind made answer the very grave mr peter scudder of philadelphia do you suppose her uncle got there, or that anything happened? I wish I had waited with her. Well, either uncle did arrive, or we'll see her in the passing follies week after next, third from the left, in as little as Comstock allows. When I've had a good look at bare arms, in my judgment connects mighty easily with bare. By that moment I had poised in my hand a very fragile cup of nicely steaming tea, and it was a very natural thing that I should hurl its contents into the face of that Mr. William Raines from the country of St. Louis. Voila! What happened? Did I stay to fight the duel with that, what I now know to call a cad, and thus be put back into the person of the Marquise de Grey for a wicked uncle to murder? I did not. I placed upon the table two large pieces of money, and I lost myself in the crowd of persons who had risen and gathered to sympathize with poor Mr. St. Louis. No one had remarked my escape, I felt sure, as I had been very agile, but as I sauntered out into the entresol of the Hotel of Ritz-Carlton, to which I have given so great a shock in its stately tea-room, a finger was laid upon my arm in its grey tweed coat. I turned and discovered a very fine and handsome woman standing beside me, and in her hand she had a book of white paper with also a pencil. I was sitting just back of Willie Raines, and I heard what he was saying about some woman, whom he and Peter Scudder had met on the boat over, not keeping her appointment with them. Peter is one of the Philadelphia elect, and nobody knows why he consorts with the gay Willie. I saw them come off the boat together this morning, and I knew that the whole Scudder meeting-house would be in a glum over their being together. Would you mind telling me just why you soused your tea into his face? It would make a corking story for my morning edition. Did you know them, or did you know the lady, or did you do it to be lancelotting? I think it must have been for the third of those reasons, madam, but I am not sure that I know the word you use. I answered with much caution. Lancelot, you know, 
the boy that was always fussing around over injured women in Tennyson or somewhere, just for a love of him that was always perfectly proper. Nice of him, but not progressive. Say, do you mind sitting down in a quiet corner of the tea room and telling me all about it? Are you French or Russian or Brazilian? And do you believe in women, or is it just because you like them that you threw the tea? I've got a suffrage article to do, and I believe you'd make a good headline with your militant tea-throwing. Want to tell me all about it? I have just one hour before going to the state of Harpeth, many miles from here, madam. I made answer with a great politeness. I thank you, but I must make my regrets. Oh, I can find out all I want to know about you in five minutes. Just come sit down with me and be a good boy. Do you want to give me your name? I wish you really were somebody that had given Willie that tea fight. And while making protestations and remonstrances, I was led again into that tea room, and seated at a great distance from the table which had been occupied by that Mr. William Raines and Mr. Peter Scudder, who had now departed. If you really were some big gun, it would kill Willie dead. Then, madam, permit me to present myself to you as Robert Carruthers, Marquis de Grayenbee, from Paris on the way to visit my uncle, General Robert Carruthers, of the state of Harpeth. I would very willingly, by information or a sword, kill that Mr. William Raines of St. Louis, and I regret that, that. At the beginning of my sentence I had drawn myself up into the attitude of the old Marquis of Flanders in the hall of the ruined Chateau de Grey. But when I had got to the point of, shall I say, my own sword, I was forced to collapse, and I could feel my knees under the tea-table begin to shake together and huddle for their accustomed and now missing skirts. That's fine and dandy, answered the nice woman, as she began to write rapidly upon the blank paper. If you'd drawn fifty swords on Willie, and he had knocked you down with the butt-end of his teaspoon, I'd have put Willie on the run in my write-up. Willie has handed me several little blows below the belt that I don't like, pretends not to have met me, when Peter Scudder's own sister, whom I knew at the settlement, introduced him to me. And what did he do to Mabel Wright, our cub on weddings? Oh, well, Mabel is another story. Now, that copy is ready to turn in when I pad it. I wonder if I will get a favor from the manager, or be turned out of the tea-room permanently, for reporting a fight as aristocratic as this in the sacred halls of the Ritz-Carlton. I'll bet my shoelacings that fifty people come here every afternoon for a week, hoping it will happen again. I do like this America, whose movement is so rapid. I made remark as I set down my second cup of tea for the afternoon. This one emptied into my depths, instead of the face of Mr. St. Louis. That's good, too, returned my new-found friend, with a laugh as she again wrote a word or two on the nice white paper. Then she placed her elbow upon the table leaned her very firm cheek on her hand, and regarded me with fine and honest and sympathetic eyes. I wonder what America is going to do to a beautiful boy like you. I'm glad that you are going to beat it to the tall timbers of the Harpeth Valley. There are women in New York who would eat you up alive. There's La Frigada, alias Maggie Sullivan from Milwaukee, over there devouring you with her eyes at this moment and that pretty little Stuvisant Blaine debutante hasn't taken her eyes off you for long enough to eat her spiced ice. I know em both, and could land something from either one if I introduced you in your title and your very beautiful clothes. Oh, I beg a pardon of you that I have not time to have an introduction to your friends. I exclaimed with a very true regret, because I did like that very nice woman, and would have liked much to have brought advantage to her. 
In less than an hour I must beat to those tall timbers of Harpeth you mention. Speaking of the state of Harpeth, I don't know as you'll be so safe after all, young friend, if that is any sample of the variety of woman that flower in that classic land of the cotton and the magnolia, which I met at Mrs. Creed Payne's war-baby tea the other afternoon, mused my fine friend as I paid the garçon for the very good tea. She is in high-up political circles down there in old Harpeth, and from the bunch of women she was with, I make a guess she is taking an interest in war contracts. She was with that Mrs. Benton, who pulled off that spectacular deal for desiccated soups for grease the other day. My stomach is too delicate to feed soldiers dried dog and rotten cabbage melted down into glue in a can. But they may like the idea, if not the soup. Anyway, the woman was a beauty, so don't let her get you. I do not entirely understand you, my dear madam, and I wish that I might have many days to talk with you about these American customs. I said, as I put into my pocket the exchange money handed to me by the garçon. Well, it is not exactly an American custom I have been putting you next to. And I guess I'm patriotically glad that you don't entirely understand. Now, I'm going to put you on the train for old Harpeth and kiss you goodbye for your mother. I'm not trusting for Gaeta, and she's lingering. Come on, if your train leaves at six o'clock. And while she spoke, my interesting and fine woman rose, and allowed me to assist her into her gray coat of tweed that was very like to mine. It was with regret that I parted from that lady at the door of the taxicab that had been called for her. And I bent over and kissed her hand, the first woman that Mr. Robert Carruthers had ever so saluted. Goodbye, boy. Remember, the tall timbers of Harpeth are best. Run right down and get a southern belle in beauty to settle down and have a dozen babies for you, just like before the war. Goodbye. I'll send you down a paper tomorrow. I don't suppose the New York journals ever penetrate the Harpeth Valley. Goodbye again. And then my friend was gone, leaving me once more alone in New York, and very shy of those tweed trousers, which I immediately put with me into another taxicab which was directed to the Pennsylvania station. At that Pennsylvania station I remembered to send to my wicked uncle an announcement by telegram of my arrival to him, and then I got upon the train just in time for its departure. I have remarked that life is like high waves of fate that break in sparkling white crests over buried mines, and I am now led to believe that many of those mines are but the habitation of mermaids of much mischief. Are all ripples on life due to women at the bottom of the matter? I do not know, but it would seem true from the things that immediately began to befall me. And was it not I, a woman who was called a daredevil, who began it all? These Pullman cars of America in which to travel great distances are very remarkable for their many strange adventures. And I was very much interested, but also perturbed, when the black garçon placed my bag and overcoat upon the floor at the feet of a very prim lady and left me to stand uncomfortably in the aisle before her. "'Your seat, sir, upper five, he said, and departed with fifty centimes, which is called a dime in America. In the little division which I could see marked five, that were to each other face to face, but it appeared that neither of them was vacant for Mr. Robert Carruthers. On one the lady sat, with very silk black skirts projecting from her sides, as did her thin elbows also in the stiffness of white linen. Beside her, occupying the rest of her seat, was a hat with large black bows of equal stiffness with the rest of the lady's apparel and disposition not to be friendly. 
on the seat opposite which from the nature of my ticket and the case i should have supposed belonged to me were piled two large bundles a shiny black bag a black silk coat also stiff like the lady an umbrella two magazines and a basket of fruit no place was apparent for me or my bags or my overcoat it seemed as if it would be best for me to stand in the middle of the car all the way to the state of harpeth so that the lady's stiffness be not disarranged i did not know what i should do and my knees began again to feel weak in that gray tweed and to be cold for their accustomed skirts but the lady looked out of the window and said not a single word i did not have any convenient cup of tea in my hand to throw in that lady's face in a manner that would not be permitted a gentleman but if i had had the very lovely lorgnette that has descended to me from my great-grandmamma the wife of the old flanders grandsire i would have settled the matter with very little trouble in an entirely ladylike manner as it was i did not know what to do but stand and then stand longer just at the moment when i began to feel that i would either be forced to forget that i was a gentleman or to faint as a lady a very nice man touched me on the elbow and said just drop your bags on her feet and come into the smoker she's got your game beat and he passed on down the aisle of that car i acted upon that very kind advice and i am glad that from the weight of the bag i got at least a small action from the stiff lady if only a groan and a glare also i should have been grateful that she had so discourteously treated me so that i was fortunate to receive the attention of mr george slade of detroit as my first experience in american manhood that mr slade of detroit is a man of remarkable adventures and he related to me many of them as he sat with me in the place reserved for the smoking of gentlemen they were all about ladies who resided in the different towns to which he travelled in the pursuit of selling cigars and he called them all by the name of skirts i tell you mr dago there is a skirt in louisville kentucky that is such a peach that you'd call for the jug of cream on sight it would pay you to stop off and see her she's on the level all right but any friend that took a line from me would be nuts to her see and he bestowed upon me a pleasant wink from his eye to that i made no response i could make none now mr robert carruthers i had said to myself at the beginning of the first story of skirts you will find yourself obliged to be in the presence of men as one of their kind and not throw scalding tea in their faces when they speak of ladies you are of a great ignorance about the brute that is known as man and you must learn to know him as you do the wild hog in hunting but even for the sake of a larger education i could not remain and i fled from that mr slade of detroit in one half hour back to the arms of the stiff lady but when i arrived there i found she had had me removed from her as far as possible to the other end of the car where i found my bags deposited by one marked g slade detroit took the liberty of transferring you here above the other gentleman sir the lady is nervous said the conductor of the car as he handed me another ticket right old top said that mr g slade as he stood beside us having followed if you don't enjoy sleepin rockabye baby we can put our togs up and you can bunk in with me i'm not nervous and with a glance at the very stiff black silk back in the front of the car he made a laugh that i could not prevent myself from sharing it is then that the delicacy of a woman is so easily corrupted 
I beg your pardon, conductor, but Upper Nine is engaged for my son, who is to get on at Philadelphia. I must have him just opposite my daughter and me. We are nervous. And as the large and pathetic lady across the aisle from number nine spoke in a most timid voice, that Mr. G. Slade gave one glance at the daughter of whom she spoke, who also must have weighed a great many litre, or what you call in America pounds, and fled back to the smoking apartment. It was a very funny sight to behold that small conductor stand with my large bags and overcoat, and look around in that car full of ladies for a place in which to deposit me and them, which was not previously occupied by some female of great nervousness. Madam, I will have to use the upper of this section, he finally turned and said to the occupant of the number seven with a very fine determination. Certainly, conductor, let me remove my hat and coat, came back the answer in a voice of very great sweetness, as the conductor deposited me and my bags down in front of the most beautiful lady in all America, I am sure. Thank you for much graciousness, madam, I said, keeping those gray tweed knees straight out in front of me and very still to prevent trembling. Not at all, sir. I only bought the lower half of this section, and I am not at all nervous. And I could see her mouth that was curled like the petals of an opening rose, tremble from a mischief as she regarded the stiff black silk back in front of the car, and the two huge females on our right, whose son and brother was to arrive in Philadelphia for their protection. An equally gay mischief rose in my eyes, and responded to that in hers, as I responded also by word for which also let us be in gratitude. Many times in the months that followed, I have thought of the lure of the laughing mischief in those eyes, that were like beautiful flowers set in crystal, and how they were to lead me into the strange land of men in search of those forbidden fruits. They were the first to offer me affection, excepting perhaps my fine reporter woman with the paper and pencil. And from that moment on, I did very much enjoy myself in conversation with that madam mischief, while we together did watch the retirement of all the persons in the train. She had many funny remarks to make, and made me merry with them, so that the hour of eleven o'clock had arrived before we had summoned the very black male chambermaid to turn our seats into beds. All others were in sleep that was a confusion of sound from everywhere, and we must stand in the aisle while the beds were being abstracted. Shall I take your bag into the dressing-room, sir? said the black male chambermaid, as if to intimate that I should leave the aisle free for his operations. Many thanks, yes, I answered him. Good night, madam, and to you again much gratitude for the happiness of an evening. And with all sincerity I directed Mr. Robert Carruthers to bend over her very white hand, and kiss it with much fervor that was resulted from the loneliness of the poor Marquise of Grey and B, who was but a girl in a strange and large land, although habited in trousers and coat. You are a dear boy. She made answer to me with unequal affection as she disappeared into the curtains of her small room. Then I departed to that room reserved for the disrobing of gentlemen. It was without occupation, and I opened my large bag and procured the very beautiful silk night robing that the kind man had sold to me that afternoon. It was in two pieces that very much resembled the costume in which gentlemen play tennis, only more ornamented by silk embroidery and braid and buttons. 
I was regarding them with joy when into the small room came that Mr. G. Slade of Detroit. He was apparelled in garments of the same cut, only of a very wide red stripe. His hair was very much in confusion, and he had a bottle in his hand in which was a liquid the color of cognac. I've only been awake for two hours listening to that peach of a skirt trying to make you fuss her a bit, and I thought I would bring you a nip to pick you up after your fight. Gee, it is as I suspected. You are off on a wedding tango, and that makes you cold to all whiles. My son, for a wedding garment that thing you have in your hand is a winner. I can't sleep in silk myself, because it makes me feel like a wet dog. But you'll be so beautiful in them that the bride will be jealous of you, and say that even if you are so pretty now, you will fade early, or that you buy your complexion at the corner emporium. Go on, put em on, or was you just looking at em for pleasure, and going to save em by sleeping as is? Me, I always undress to the skin, but some don't. I, I was just looking at them with pleasure. I made haste to answer that Mr. G. Slade of Detroit. When upon travels I always fear to disrobe myself, I think that I will now retire. And with a haste that made my hands tremble, I replaced the sleeping garments in the large bag, and prepared to flee down the aisle to the sleeping apartment, in which was the protection of another woman's presence. Not even a nip before you go. He asked me, as he held the large bottle to his lips, and threw back his head for a gurgling down his throat. No, with much gratitude, and good night. I answered as I rapidly departed, with my cheeks in a flame of scarlet, and a fear in my heart. In my flight I passed by that number seven, and came very near opening the curtains of the number five, and precipitating myself upon the bayonets of black taffeta, that stood firm from a hat so placed as to bar my intrusion. From that accident I turned, and sought the kind black male chambermaid, with a request that he show me how to insert myself into the right place for sleeping. Right here, boss. Climb upon these little steps, and then hand me down your shoes. Soft now. I think the lady am asleep. Good night, and I'm not nervous. I heard a laugh of mischief come from behind a second and short green curtain that veils the lower of the sleeping shelves just as I fell onto my shelf above, and lay with a panting of relief. End of chapter 3